Yoga in Action proudly presents The Lost Ways of Knowing with Circle Yoga Shala's Matthew Kreps. So if you're just joining us, we'll give a summary of what came just before this podcast. Last time we focused on the Upanishads, a body of literature that comes up in the late Vedic period. And we talked about how they show a clear shift away from the external formal sacrificial rite, the traditional Vedic rite. They show instead a turn toward the sacrificial event becoming a fully internalized ordeal. They teach the identity of the human soul with the divine and also that realization means a, a kind of resorption, reabsorption into the absolute or the source and that that is an escape from the birth and death cycle. Also really important about the Upanishads was it, it's a sign of a new discourse centered around the body. The body gains, gains uh, status as the oblation in the sacrifice. This new status that the body gains leads to research and development, a lot of things happening. And we talked about mystical developments, like breathing techniques, certain concentration exercises, meditation things. And we also talked about uh, developments in medicine, in Ayurveda, how this new uh, status that the body had gained generated interest in its physiology in a certain way. It became an object in a sense of fascination and affection in a new way. You also really see in the Upanishad the kind of the first clear picture of what it looks like to to do something like we would call yoga. You definitely see pranayama. We went over several uh, mentions of yogic techniques designed to increase internal fire by way of doing breathing pranayama and that sort of being a the new iteration of the traditional sacrifice. And now we're burning up accumulated karma from ignorant action that results from misidentification. So today we're going to talk a lot about the, we're going to talk mostly about the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. And the Gita itself is considered to be an Upanishad. So before we can speak about the Gita, we have to talk about the larger epic or te and text that the Gita is nested within. This text is called the Mahabharata, and it is the, you could say it's the national epic of, of India. The Maha means great, and Bharata is, is the name, a name of India, very much still used today. This is an amazing, massive text, story. And it takes itself to be eternal, in a sense. So let me read you something from the Mahabharata. This is it commenting on itself. Poets have told it before, 
and are telling it now, and will tell it again. What is here is also found elsewhere, but what is not found here is found nowhere else. So everything in it is real, and in a sense, there's nothing new in it. It's everything that is, but what's not found in it, in some ways, is unreal, because it can't be found elsewhere. If we look at rough dates, Wendy Doniger gives a wide swath of history in which it's likely that these things were composed. 300 BCE to 300 CE. Okay. The epic itself, she says, she makes it a point in her work to show that the Mahabharata has been retold many, many times and that each time it gets a subtle differentiation, a new nuance emerges in it. Here's what Doniger says specifically. It, the Mahabharata, is so extremely fluid that there is no single Mahabharata. There are hundreds of Mahabharatas hundreds of different manuscripts, and innumerable oral versions. It has about 75,000 verses and some 3 million words. It's kind of hard to see exactly, according to these experts, but they all seem to be around somewhere in the 3 million mark for word. It's the, it's the world's longest epic. It's 15 times longer than the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament combined. And so it, it's the story of, a, of the formation of, of, of India, in a way. If we were to summarize, because we're going to have to do that, the focus of this episode is, is really the Gita because of its relationship to modern yoga. And so we're kind of glossing the Mahabharata, but we will take our gloss from, from an expert again, Wendy Doniger. So here's the basic summary. The five sons of King Pandu, the Pandavas, were fathered by gods. Yudhishthira, by Dharma, Bhima, by the wind, or Vayu, Arjuna, by Indra, and the twins, Nakula and Sahadeva, by the Asvins. All five of them married Draupadi. When Yudhishthira lost the kingdom to his cousins in a dice game, the Pandavas and Draupadi went into exile for twelve years, at the end of which, with the help of their cousin, the incarnate god Krishna, who befriended the Pandavas and whose counsel to Arjuna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra is the Bhagavad Gita, they regained their kingdom through a cataclysmic battle in which almost everyone on both sides was killed. Now, as a summary of some three million words, <laughs> we, we know what we're dealing with here, but it contains everything about the divine origins of the first rulers and first people and their relations, what the marriage situation was like, 
and then this great battle on the field of Dharmakshetra, Kurukshetra, which the Bhagavad Gita is the story of. So we begin to focus on the Gita. Of course, we want to know a little bit what does the word itself mean? Most of the times you see it translated as Song of God. It's the central chapter in the Mahabharata. And its significance for the Hindu imaginary is really impossible to overstate. So Bhagavan, I think, pretty close, I'm probably pretty close to right, that it means something like God-man. That title is given to Ramana Maharshi, for instance. Anyone considered to have realized could have that title. This appearance of this God-man centers around Krishna in this battle because Krishna is an avatar uh, of Vishnu. The doctrine of the avatar is in the is in the second chapter, I think, somewhere in the beginning, where Krishna tells Arjuna that when when things have gone bad at a certain level, then the divine incarnates, and in this case, that's Vishnu. And that way, the way can be taught and Dharma can be reestablished and things can go in that direction. So the Bhagavan, in this case, is Krishna, who is driving this warrior's chariot in this battle. And the Gita is the song of that. We have to, the, the, the subject of the Gita itself is way beyond our scope. So remember that we're leading up through the sort of most significant ideas in history that kind of lead up to modern yoga. And so we're focusing on the Gita in relation to yoga in particular. We should know that there are many other things taught in the Gita, unimaginable depths uh, that, that we won't be speaking of. But in order to, in, at least as I see it, speak about modern yoga, it doesn't make sense to, to not speak about this. You'll see why I hope after we get through. So how are we going to focus on the Gita? We're going to focus in two, basically two areas. Number one, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Vedic sacrifice and how it comes up through history and how its valences are changed, how it, the images surrounding it subtly morph and so on. The, the Gita is a, is a synthesis of that Vedic view in a way with the view that emerged from the Upanishads, which is more of an, a renunciate view. And we'll get into the specifics of that in a minute. But it, it actually puts those two together and this is a kind of yoga happening, and it offers, in a sense, something new. And so it, it's a, a great confluence and coagulation of significance worked out in kind of a practical way and then placed in the context of devotion, ultimately. Second, the Gita and the Sutra are... are the Yoga Sutra, potentially, are 
pretty close together in history in terms of time and composition. And because the Yoga Sutra is really important for modern yoga, and because the Gita and the Sutra share certain things and emphasize certain things, they they obviously relate to one another. We need to speak about how the Gita and the Sutra interface or intersection. There's also secondarily, after the Yoga Sutra, there's some things in the Gita that have been interpreted later on in history to be referring to Hatha Yoga. So first we're going to talk about the Gita as synthesis, and then we're going to go to its its intersection with the Yoga Sutra to kind of position ourselves in relation to these main ideas. Now, if the Gita is a synthesis, it has a specific, if it's a synthesis of the Vedic, what we call the Vedic way of sacrifice and the the evolution of that in the Upanishads, which is more ascetic, more pulling back away from the world than sacrificing in order to produce benefit. It's a, the Gita is a critique of both of those ways, and there are specific slokas that refer specifically to sacrifice, which is called the way of action also sometimes in the Gita, and then references to the ascetic way, which is called the way of renunciation. Here's an example of the critique of the Vedic sacrifice. This is from chapter 2. This are slokas 42, 43, and 44, and then 46. The ignorant ones proclaim this flowery discourse, Arjuna, delighting in the letter of the Veda and saying, there is nothing else. Full of desires, intent on heaven, they offer a rebirth as the fruit of action and are addicted to many specific rites aimed at the goal of enjoyment and power. To those, the ignorant ones, who are attached to enjoyment and power, whose thought is stolen away by this kind of talk, resolute insight in meditation is not granted. And then 46 kind of sums it up. As much value as there is in a well when water is flooding on every side, so much is the value of the Vedas for a Brahmin who knows. I feel like I'm going to get struck by lightning for saying that about the Veda. Give it as much sanctity and reverence, you know, as come with us up to this point. But this is a very important thing to see. It's not an uncommon thing to see that uh, an ancient system of sacrifice, for instance, that that initially produced benefit, turns into something else, becomes sort of automatic or rote, loses its mojo in a certain way. The critique being offered here is something like that. But look at specifically what has happened. Krishna is critiquing the aim in a certain way of the sacrifice. He says, full of desires intent on heaven, they offer rebirth as the fruit of action and are addicted to many specific rites aimed at the goal of enjoyment and power. So obviously aimed at the goal of enjoyment and power shows that there's a problem in the way this offering is being made. 
It says they offer rebirth as the fruit of action. So as I understand it, when the Vedic sacrifice was being made, in general, we're still in the the place of reincarnation here. And so rebirth is just taken for granted. But it's a matter of the sacrifice becomes a matter of performing the correct actions in a certain manner so that you have a better rebirth. And you don't have, for instance, what the Upanishads bring to the scene, which is the idea that we just need to get out of that cycle altogether. And so when Krishna's saying here they're they're looking for, they offer rebirth as the fruit of action, they're looking for a better rebirth in the next life. So there's a certain selfness in that that is unacceptable. And that's glossed as the goal of enjoyment and power. So to those who are attached, whose thought is stolen away by that kind of talk, promises for the future, let's get the goods in a certain way. They can't get resolute insight in meditation. They can meditate, but it won't come because the mind and the heart, this desire matrix that keeps running about always having to have something that's gratifying, enjoying, that gives me more power. That's about as valuable as water when the, as a well is when everything is flooding on every side. And so you see that a new way is being offered here with the critique of the Vedic sacrifice. In the last episode, we spoke about how the the Upanishad and what it brings with the teaching on Brahman and the identity of the soul with the source is it brings also a new way to the scene. The Gita is well aware of that way, that renunciate way, that Gnostic way of, of realization and seeing clearly the identity of the human soul or the Jiva, the Atman, with Brahman, Tattvam, Asi. The Gita is well aware of that, but it sees that that could become a problem. And it's speaking here specifically about meditation or contemplative ways. This is from chapter 3, Sloka 6. He who sits restraining his organs of action while in his mind brooding over the senses with a deluded mind is said to be a hypocrite. So this is a sign or a signal of the way of renunciation, restraining the organs of action. And so the idea of fettering things here because actions have consequences is is well underway. It's obviously meditative because sitting still and then a focus on the mind, but if the mind is brooding over the objects of the senses, then internally another world has been created that resembles the outer And that coming to stillness or that ceasing of action, this way of renunciation, is hypocritical. So we're kind of in a a bind in a certain sense. In a broad sense, the Gita is wrestling with the relationship between these two paths, We have this Vedic path that we'll call the path of return or the path of action in which one engages in the sacrifices to obtain a surplus of good karma and ensure a better birth in the next life. 
So this is positive action on my own behalf. Then come along the Upanishad. We'll call this the path of release or the path of renunciation. All action or karma leads to attachment. That leads to suffering and that leads to rebirth. And then the worst part, that leads to redeath again. Wendy Doniger says that it's not rebirth that people mind so much. It's this continual redeath, this long, slow moving toward death, if indeed it lasts, you know, a long time or whatever else. The Upanishad is trying to offer a release right from that through the realization of the identity of the Atman and Brahman. Here's what Doniger says specifically about these two ways, the Vedic and the Upanishadic, the, the way of action and the way of renunciation. These two tracks, one for people who want to get off the wheel of redeath, and one for those who don't want to get off the wheel of rebirth, continue as options for South Asians even to this day. So the Gita's wrestling with this, and it's going to put it together, put the two together, evolve them, bring them forward, and in a way, crown them. Now, how does it resolve these two? How does the Gita put these two paths together and crown them? It has to do with action. So much of the teaching in the Gita is about the nature of action. Is the way of knowledge better or is the way of action better? What's right action? What's non-action? What's wrong action? Ultimately, it says to be is to act, that no one can avoid acting. And that's a profound realization because it shows you that when you think you're not acting, there's going to be consequences to that. And when you're obviously acting, there's going to be consequences for that. And so it, it, it puts it all together. It says ultimately all sacrifice is composed of action. But this can't be imitative, this action can't be imitative of the past in a sense because a new way is being offered. So sometimes that's called wisdom in action. Naishkarmya karman. Action and renunciation can exist in a relationship of creative complementarity. But we don't have to forsake the world, that means become a renunciate and pull back and we don't have to be absorbed completely into the world. We can keep our responsibilities, even in this case, and remember this is a story about a war, even if our responsibilities oblige us to go into battle. So we don't have to pull back from the world or be totally absorbed in it. We can even go into battle between those two possibilities. Renunciation of action is a good in itself. That has a lot to do with what yoga is traditionally conceived of, you know, being a renunciate. But the Gita offers something a little bit different, renunciation in action. So this is the ideal of actionless action, what it means to be wise in action. Naish Karmya Karman, as I said. Krishna is the exemplar of what it means to act that way. 
And in chapter 3, shlokas 22 to 25, we get that. Here's what it says. For me, O Arjuna, there is nothing whatever to be done in the three worlds, nor is there anything not attained to be attained. Nevertheless, I engage in action. Indeed, if I, unwearied, should not engage in action at all, mankind would follow my path everywhere. If I did not perform action, these worlds would perish, and I would be the cause of confusion. I would destroy these creatures. While those who are unwise act from attachment to action, so the wise should act without attachment, intending to maintain the welfare of the world. So, right relationship between the human layer of action and the divine layer of action is for a, a certain mimesis to be going on between them. And in this case, Arjuna needs to take the action of starting the war, so he's having to learn about what right action is and how to relate to an action, even if it is one as, as devastating as this. So, because the divine engages in action, we also engage in action. But the wise act from a space of non-attachment. And they intend to maintain the welfare of the world. So the specifics in that teaching, they mean that if we're going to value the world and we're going to act on our own behalf and we're going to also embody the wisdom of renunciation at the same time, we're supposed to behave like these wise ones. So that means stuff like decentralizing uh, naked egoic concerns, proceeding, quote, unselfishly, with non-attachment to the results, what the Gita calls the fruits of action. So the Gita gives a warning about what it means to not do this or to act unwisely. It says the world and its inhabitants are ensnared in a repetitive karmic cycle of ignorance. That's chapter 3, shloka 9. And so, unwise action equals ensnarement. It equals unfinished business. Things that create cycles and eddies, uh, repetitive things, even if they repeat over long periods of time. That's because of attachment to the result. We're trying to control the way that it turns out, or we're just bound up too much, not able to give enough, for instance, affection and attention to the to the process itself to generate gratefulness as, as it unfolds. And somehow, instead, we focus on the fruit, how it's going to be. We have to understand that we don't know how it's going to be, even when we take the right action. So, that's the wise part, that seeing and being able to be non-attached to the fruits. Remember, there is a part about maintaining the welfare of the world. That being something of the motivation of this kind of action. Why do I do what I do to maintain the welfare of this world? Uh, 
to uphold or to be a support, right, in a certain way. I think Nishkarmya Karman is refers to a set of pillars about action in the world. So that idea of becoming a support in a certain sense, rather than something that has to be fed power and enjoyment, is a deep part of this moral flavor that the action has. So wise action has to also be morally sound and justifiable. This should become, this, this way, this feeling, this giving action, this flavor, is really the foundation for practice. Okay? So you can think subjective clarity. That means I've surrendered attachment to outcomes. And objective rationality in the sense that it emerges, this action emerges from a universal moral ground. That is, it is a, a, a good imitation of the action of the divine. So, let's give a summary. The Mahabharata is the great epic of India. India is still called Bharata. So this is a deep piece of the national consciousness, the identity of who Hindus believe they are many. And the Gita is the central chapter, and this is a story of a war. It's a key text for understanding how the meanings that we associate with yoga today sort of emerged and were used, where they came from. It's it's so key. It, it teaches several yogas. The Gita is also a synthesis of the two great paths that have kind of preceded it. One is the way of action or the Vedic way, and one is the way of renunciation, the way of the ascetic in the Upanishad, where realization means getting out of the cycle of birth and death, I wanted to leave you with something that is quoted endlessly in so many different contexts. I have seen this basic quotation. It's from chapter 2. It's Sloka 17. It's quoted so much because it's kind of an ultimate truth or it's the object of a certain level of realization about what is valuable and so forth. Chapter 2, Sloka 17. Of the non-existent, there is no coming to be. Of the existent, there is no ceasing to be. The conclusion about these two has been perceived by the seers of truth. So, if, if I translate that just a little bit into one of the best, or one that I remember the most, is that which is real cannot be destroyed. 
that which is unreal never really existed or only appeared to exist. This is a statement about the nature of the self. That the the soul cannot be, it says, pierced by a spear. It cannot be burned by fire. It cannot be made wet by water. It cannot be dried by wind. This is a deep teaching that is given to Arjuna about the, the nature of what he actually is, and it, it points him, his consciousness, in the right direction. That picks up the pattern in the Upanishad, right, about the nature of the, the importance of the realization of the self and places that realization in the context of a, a situation that demands, you know, a heroic action. And so action in the world becomes based on this realization of the self. I've also found that uh, quotation at times to be incredibly comforting. What is real cannot be destroyed. What is unreal never existed. Maybe it seemed to. So we hope you find some of this interesting. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. To support our podcast, find Circle Yoga Shala's Patreon page and receive early access, study guides, live sessions with your podcast host, Matt, retreat discounts, and more. Circle Yoga Shala is a school for yoga, creative movement, and self-inquiry in Arkansas's Ozark Mountains. Offerings range from beginner yoga teacher training to an internationally accredited yoga therapy program, as well as Ayurvedic cooking courses for individuals and professionals like chefs, nutritionists, and life coaches. Additional retreats include equine inquiry, CEUs, yoga and recovery, and so much more. Subscribe to our quarterly publication, Yoga in Action, a comprehensive body of literature. To know more about our in-person offerings, visit circleyogashala.com.